Greetings, everybody out there in Dreamland. Namaste and Salam. Iron sharpens iron, and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you all very much for tuning in to another broadcast of Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am talking, broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast with most, the Gulf Coast of Texas. It's my pride and privilege to be doing so. Talking to you from here to out there, wherever you may be in space and time. Thank you, everyone, listeners new and old. There are many unsolved murders in Texas. There are many unsolved murders on the Gulf Coast. And surprisingly, they occur in some of the most beautiful paradises you can find in the Western Hemisphere. And in my own personal sentiment, in the entire world. Over 70 miles of beach barrier island separates the Texas mainland from the Gulf of Mexico. The Gulf of Mexico roaring and raging on the east in its golden crescent from the Acapulco Bay to the Florida Panhandle the Caribbean islands forming almost a complete but yet currently broken circle around the Gulf of Mexico with Texas having 70 undisturbed miles of pristine almost completely untouched Intentionally so, federal, federally owned land, state-owned land, uh, wildlife parks. It's in fact a wildlife uh, zone. It's basically uh, very, very untouched. Four by four access to most of it, most times of the year. 70 miles of sand dunes, 70 miles of coastal villages, towns, but nary a major metropolis in sight. Nothing over 10,000 people at maximum, even at the most busy, located on the coast, down till you get to Port Isabel at the border of Mexico. Some of the islands in this barrier island chain known as the Padre Islands from North Padre to South Padre are privately owned and that'll be uh, a factor in some of these unsolved mysteries at least one of them San Juan Island privately owned none other than the Bush family the Bush family dynasty in fact George Herbert Walker Bush 
used to visit and vacation in Port Aransas and Mustang Island on the Padre Islands in Corpus Christi. So often, these could be considered his home away from home up from Yale in the East Coast. He had an affair with a woman and even had paid for her abortion, which at the time was scandalous for a Republican, especially the son of George Bush Sr., George W. Bush Sr., to have engaged in. This is available knowledge. This is, was in the news as presidential scandal. Absolutely. A piece of infamy associated that, but not the last, to add some context to some of these mysteries. The area is very rich, as well as also very poor. And in that desperation, you see the eco economics at hand, where people from all over the world both retire and own property for vacation in Port Aransas as well as real estate to rent. Tourists from all over the state flock there in the summer and the springs, as well as winter Texans from all across northern United States and Canada arriving to enjoy the mild winters in the many RV parks and inns and lodges. The locals are either employed in the tourist service trade or are themselves these tourists who permanently decided to move down there, opening up businesses of their own. There are only two ways to Port Aransas, which is located 40 minutes by vehicle away from Corpus Christi, you'd have to take SPID, South Padre Island Drive, which is a freeway, down over the JFK Causeway. You'd have to take it across the Laguna Madre. You'd have to take it over Mustang Island. Then on Mustang Island, you'd have to take a uh, about a 20 to 30 minute drive on a two lane, two lane road through almost completely untouched Grasslands and salt lakes. Beautiful country. Watching the backsides of sand dunes. Which just over the ridge of the sand dunes you would see the beach. With many access roads to the beachfront. Condominiums. You know, local service areas. But it's mostly private land. And driving there you would drive up to Port Aransas. A town with only... Roughly 3,000 people, full-time permanent residents. The other option, the only other option, is to access it via ferry. These ferries are run quite like clockwork, every 15 minutes or so, no matter what the weather, providing ample access from the second Aransas in this story, Aransas Pass, which I will be including as one larger community, an even poorer, more working class oriented 
community, many people suffering from poverty, drug addiction, and a general small town closed off feel to it. A general unwelcoming nature coupled by a fact that there is very little in ways of infrastructure or business and serves just to get between Rockport located further down or further north, sorry, further north of Aransas Pass which is a very popular and very uh, wealthy area, Rockport much larger and much more sophisticated as infrastructure as a town and Ingleside which is the home of the refineries the workers typically therein and the locals who enjoy the obscurity as well as the beauty of Ingleside Port Aransas is beauty the the idyllic seaside Texas community I think serves as a counterpoint that makes these murders even more shocking but explains how they can be unsolved and almost unsolvable from a criminal investigation standpoint as well as perfect breeding ground from a more conspiratorial minded investigator such as one who is versed in the program to kill or organized crime aspects ritualized murder um Organized rape, sexual assault gangs, snuff, uh, human trafficking, drug trade, etc. That would go into explaining these cases in greater contexts. But let's get into it. Let's, let's hit the ground running. Let's dive into it. Number of cases to speak about from this Port Aransas, Aransas Pass area. The Aransas, Texas area. This first case, the Texas teens slaying that it remained unsolved for 40 years. This article was written in July 24th, 2009 by Associated Press. Hours after two 14-year-old girls closed the cover on a novel they were reading during a sleepover, Slipped into twin beds and turned off the lights. One girl's cry sent the other to wake her sleeping parents. The events of that night, July 24, 1969, on Mustang Island have baffled investigators over 40 years. One girl died, and it has so haunted her friend that it may have led her to kill herself decades later. Genevieve Duncan met her daughter May on the stairs of the two-story beach house. May said the crime came from her friend, Caroline Hart. The mother heard a door slam and found a terrifying sight downstairs. 
Caroline was gasping and bleeding on the bed, suffering from a stab wound to the heart. By the time they dressed to take her to a hospital, Caroline was dead. The case of the oldest unsolved slaying in Nueces County, which includes Corpus Christi along the Texas Gulf Coast. The knife was never found. No motive was clear and no arrests were ever made. Caroline's father, then publisher of the San Antonio Express and Evening News, had an unsettling premonition after his brother, Edward, then the publisher of the Corpus Christi Caller Times, called to relay the news. Sometimes, as we walked around in shock, I remember thinking to myself, this is a crime that will never be solved, said Houston Hart, whose father was a founder of Hart Hanks Newspapers Incorporated. And I was right about that. End quote. The Sheriff's Department case file includes a fading co- color snapshot of a smiling Caroline. Her red hair parted down the center and pulled back behind her ears. A sky blue striped t-shirt whose color matches her eyes. It documents every clue, none of which lead to the killer. A few days before the attack, the girls' bathing suits left outside to dry in the sea breezes at the beach house turned up missing. No one could ever link the theft to the killing. Detectives dusted the door Mrs. Duncan heard slam and the rest of the house for fingerprints, but turned up nothing. A dock worker and a service station attendant were given polygraph tests. Cops questioned a paperboy, drifters, surfers, maintenance workers, and people with various illegal drug connections. The son of a military man from a nearby naval air station was questioned in Florida. A suspicious man with binoculars was tracked down and questioned, turning out to be nothing but a bird watcher. Window peepers were picked up, sex offenders tracked down, obscene phone callers traced and located. In the weeks after the slaying, a car with Minnesota plates was spotted with a bloody knife on the back seat. DNA and forensic tests found that it was fish blood and the suspect was released. Police in San Antonio tracked down a guy known as Freddy Flashlight, a convicted burglar on probation, but he denied involvement and offered to take a polygraph. Acting on a tip, they found a man in Rockport who was picked up for stealing women's clothing and shredding underwear with a knife. No match. And a strong alibi crossed him off the suspect list. A Buick mechanic saw news clippings about the slaying in the backseat of a car he was working on and alerted the police. It turns out the daughter of the car's owner knew Caroline and had an interest in the case. Even potential ties to the Charles Manson slayings were investigated, but tossed aside. No dice. Detectives hauled in a 23-year-old man with scratch marks on his right arm that an informant said had been acting strange, singing and dancing alone, and offering to pay friends so he could score with a woman. 
He could account for the day before and the day after Caroline's slaying, but not the day of her death or the mysterious scratches. But he didn't have a criminal record, no history of violence. His attorney refused a request for a lie detector test. And authorities had fingernail scrapings from Caroline to check for DNA. Or authorities had no fingernail scrapings to Caroline to check for DNA, which was an unknown process in 1969. So he was let go. With the mystery unsolved, Mae Duncan was left to live her life carrying the memory of her friend's brutal death. She married, but Caroline's legacy became apparent to her spouse, who learned the slaying not long after they met. Intuitively, I knew that was a major part of her life, said Skip Doty, May's husband of 21 years. At the same time, I didn't want to pry. I never had children, something her husband believes was connected to the killing. It gnawed on her the rest of her life, he said. I think it kind of gnawed on the whole family. It was one of those events you can't imagine happening. When she was interviewed by police after Caroline's death, May told authorities they were reading How Green Was My Valley, a novel about a Victorian-era mining family in Wales. Sometime after 11 p.m., Caroline turned out the light and they both went to sleep. Caroline's cry woke her. May called to her friend to be quiet and got a moan in response. I went over to her because I thought she was dreaming, she told officers. May went to find her mother upstairs and stayed there while mom and dad checked on Caroline. A short time later, my parents came back down upstairs and told me Caroline was dead. And that she had a wound on her stomach. She told detectives describing the incision between Caroline's third and fourth ribs that pierced her heart. Doty said his wife met with Hart's parents, now in their 80s, in San Antonio about 10 or 12 years ago. They got the sense she never believed she wasn't still considered a suspect. She was one of the first people interviewed, but police were quickly convinced May didn't kill her friend. We never thought she accepted fully that we didn't suspect that she had something to do with it, Houston Hart said. We worked to convince her of that, but that was not a widely agreed to theory, and she suffered greatly from that suspicion, end quote. She slipped in and out of depression for much of her life, her husband said, and while she could have periods of joy, he was wary. He kept the kitchen knives, for instance, more dull than they should have been. He decided keeping a gun in the house was a bad idea. She bought one anyway, without his knowledge, and in 2006, Doty found his wife in their orchard, dead from a bullet she had fired herself. The last entry in a nearly six-inch thick pile of investigators' notes and crime scene photos is dated June 3, 1970. Although Nueces County Sheriff's Lieutenant William Edge said sheriff's detectives 15 or 20 years ago made a round of calls checking on suspects who initially were questioned. Even as investigators considered whether to pry into the case again, there isn't much to review. The house has changed owners, witnesses have passed away, files have been read and reread, years have gone by without so much as a tip about what might have happened to Caroline Hart. This case, if solved, will be because somebody told somebody, or somebody someday is going to want to get it off their chests on their deathbed, Edge said. That's how I see it. End of article. This is 
it's a very mysterious case, especially when you think about the actual um, details of it. That this individual who murdered her, this little girl, who remember is red-haired, she is a wealthy daughter of the owner of the San Antonio newspaper, and her uncle is the owner of the Corpus Christi Caller Times newspaper, which back in the 1960s were very powerful and lucrative positions in the local press, the society of the time, etc. And she is wearing a sky blue striped bathing suit. The same as the Epstein Island coloration scheme, uh, etc. And she's described as being red-haired and very beautiful with blonde with blue eyes. So very Aryan. This must have been an elite beach house in a very far away remote area. The only people that knew that she was there, besides the many possible passerbys, etc., would have been very few and very powerful people at that. The suspicions immediately fall to the parents, either the father or the mother of the little girl, Dottie, or Dodie, who would be so guilt-ridden at possibly subconsciously knowing that her parents were the only ones to do it, that she internalized it as a guilt about possibly being the suspect until she shot herself, having realized that she never confessed. Or she subconsciously, either by sleepwalking or in a fit of juvenile anger or jealousy, fatally stabbed her friend. And I think sleepwalking is a perfect, reasonable explanation Realizing what she had done, quickly hiding the knife, creating the lie of, of this man who slammed this door, or slamming the door herself, instantaneously coming up with Maybe it was a premeditated thing, just at the time she was a child and didn't realize how bad and how big of a deal this would actually seriously become, and how severe, as the time went on, this guilt would form into her constantly... Uh, having to be reassured that she was not the suspect because she's that's clear sign of guilt. As well as maybe even um, the 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 effects of maybe a ritualistic uh, child sacrifice, where these girls were participating in and told just to have this cover story of reading how green was my valley, which was probably an occult reference to people reading that article as was the description of her bathing suit being sky blue stripes and matching her eyes except the red hair all of that 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 is 100% code that is trying to get communicated because that article appeared on CBS news national news for America and is the oldest unsolved case in uh, Corpus Christi history which is Puerto Ranch is being a suburb of Corpus Christi. Crazy shit, but like I said, we'll never know because the case has remained unsolved for 40 years. And the last key eyewitness having shot herself committed suicide 
unable to bear some kind of horror that haunted her that very day. This next case has a lot more attention to it, even though that last one was published in the, the, the national news. This one happened only in 2011, though, very recently. Still over 10 years ago, but just barely. And in the modern day, we enough media and digital attention on it, Reddit, etc., existing, having put attention on it, made it immortal. So now we're talking about the... case of Christopher Tinch. The case of Christopher Tinch. Which is a very high-profile, unsolved murder of a technocrat down on the Texas Gulf Coast. This is from 3 News, the local news station, Corpus Christi. Unsolved Files, Christopher Tinch. In the summer of 2011, a coastal community of Port Aransas was thrown into the spotlight when the body of a man was discovered in the surf of San Jose Island. I will play the news clip, then read the article. His watch, wallet, car keys, and cell phone were all left behind. A 
search ensued. But days later, a grisly discovery, several miles away across the ship channel. We have our two uh, crime scenes, and the stuff that is in the hotel, I can tell you, makes it very strange for that body to be on an island. The Texas Rangers and the FBI joined the investigation, and many leads were pursued. I mean, we got the VIP treatment, and we're still here where we are. The thorough investigation also looked into Tinch's business dealings. What it uncovered was eye-opening. The way it was explained to me is basically invented the technology that allowed you back when you're in the Stone Age of cell phones, the text messages on one carrier carrier, Elon and the top of each other. Turns out Tinch was involved in a legal battle against his former company, plus SMS in New Zealand. There was uh, pretty uh, good information in the news about how he blew the whistle on that company for some dirty dealings that were called the museum Enron. Tinch was suing SMS Holdings, reportedly accusing the company of fraud and for firing him without cause. One email cited in the case reportedly read, quote, put a bullet in Tinch. Countries have different ways and saying where, you know, we'll say, give the ax to someone to fire them. In New Zealand, apparently putting the bullet is, you know, fire. Detective Hannon says all indications show Tinch's murder was not a hit and not a case of revenge. Two of the investigators originally assigned actually went to Dallas and met with one of the executives that was one of the higher ups in that company. We, we talked to them, you know, freely, and it just wasn't anything green where they were being involved. Despite the dead ends, Detective Hannon still has faith. One day, Tinch's murder will be solved. If someone didn't say something seven years ago because they had some type of concern, hopefully that passed and they would call us and let us know something. Or if they did this, just maybe something's changed in their life where they want to get rid of that guilt and release it. They want to let his family know what it really happened. Bill Churchwell, 3 News. And if you have any information that you think could help Port Aransas Police, give them a call 749-6241. And the story there is about much we know. And these other articles that will probably add a little bit more to it, but not necessarily break the case open. Because it is an unsolved mystery after 12 years, and clearly was a professional hit of some success because the Port Aransas police obviously know more about what caliber of weapon was used or where this incident was taking place on San Juan Island if he was thrown into the water and he washed up on shore etc etc but they they are keeping the details close to their chest and pretending that they don't know anything um, but clearly they know a lot more if they were willing to trace it back uh, to New Zealand, etc. That, that's basically their, their way of discreetly um, accusing this of being an international matter that is beyond their jurisdiction because it's a matter of, uh, of uh, you know, corporate espionage, etc. The technocracy of Texas which is an international technocracy, and he spoke freely as in spoken Freemason to Freemason. Christopher Tinch visited Port Aransas from Austin in 2011. 
told you the technocrats of Silicon Hills. Silicon Hills in Austin. Technocrats of South by Southwest. Christopher Tinch visited Port Aransas from Austin in 2011, but he never returned home. He was found dead with at least one gunshot wound, floating near San Jose Island. Today, Tinch's murder remains the lone unsolved homicide for the Port Aransas Police Department. Tuesday, September 15th is the ninth anniversary of the day his body was discovered. Investigators say that the case is at a standstill. Amy Jamison, a PAPD detective, said that the new... Evidence has come up since 2016, according to case files. We have exhausted all of our leads. No new leads have arisen, she said. While the case is not classified as closed for Port Aransas Police Department, Sergeant Joey Rivas, who supervised the Criminal Investigation Division, said that the case is suspended pending any new leads. On September 11, 2011, Tench, 43, a successful telecommunications consultant from the Austin area, traveled alone to the Port Aransas area to go fishing. He checked into the Holiday Inn Express and Suites on 11th Street just before 3 p.m. Tench spoke with family members that day. On September 11th, 2011, mind you. The next day, Tench's wife hadn't heard from him after a 24-hour period, so she started contacting the hotel. Tench and his wife normally kept in close contact. Hotel staff checked his hotel room and found his cell phone, wallet, and car keys inside his room. His vehicle was still in the parking lot, as well as belongings still in their luggage. Tench's phone, credit card, and debit cards weren't used after the night he arrived in Port Aransas. His body was found on September 15, 2011 by a low-flying helicopter on San Jose Island. Representatives of the Texas Rangers, FBI, and Travis County Sheriff's Office assisted in the investigation. Following the homicide, Port Aransas PD Chief Scott Burrow said that the autopsy confirmed that Tinch had been shot and it didn't look like he did it himself. The chief wouldn't say how many gunshot wounds Tinch suffered. Police said they didn't believe Tinch was shot on San Jose Island. He was believed to have washed up on shore. This one is from the Austin news site KVUE ABC. So super major uh, local TV news. Uh, like this is like if you know it about Americans, if you listen to this an international audience, we have national news, which is like big corporation and they know they don't like yes they they probably do the 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 more grandiose investigations, the documentaries of like the mas- national news level, but they're actually very lacking in detail. And they're totally non-representative of actual, like, they always happen years later. Even sensational stories are, that's why if it's in the national news, they're clearly fabricated. That, because the national news is such a slow, ponderous thing to even, like, turn around and notice, notice a news story. Local news report on things that happen immediately in the area. Everyone has a local news. They get, they understand, like, local news also has nothing really to talk about. So they're, they're very eager to post as much as they can. But also they're completely controlled by these big companies just like everything else in America. They're all owned by like six companies nowadays. So this is just like ABC. Uh, there's ABC, NBC, CBS. Um, 
And then, like, you know, you have Fox and stuff like that. Like, uh, but that's basically it. It's the local, local news stations. The, like, a handful of three-letter major broadcasting uh, studios and affiliates. And they censor and control all the news, pay all the bills, etc. But then these people basically keep them alive as well by doing all the actual work to keep these news stations going. So KVUE, ABC. In 2011, an Austin businessman took a trip to the Texas coast and wound up dead. Police still don't know what happened. Eight years after Christopher Tinch's body was found in Port Aransas with a bullet wound. Remember, this has now become a bullet wound, even though they said they did not confirm how many bullet wounds he suffered. Police are still trying to figure out who killed him and why. So if it was one bullet wound, you know, it was either a heart shot or a head shot. Or it'd be even more fucked up if they shot him in the dick and then threw him in the ocean. Sending a message. Port Aransas, Texas. In the summer of 2011, Austin businessman Christopher Tinch told his family he was heading to the Texas coast to relax. He never came home. Four days later, his body washed up in Port Aransas with a bullet wound. Investigators found blood in his room at a Holiday. Oh, investigators found blood in his room at a Holiday Inn Express. The crime remains unsolved eight years later, one of the biggest mysteries in Port Aransas. That's what kind of gives people the comfort that in their safety is that if something happens, you can fix it by finding evidence and arrest is made and they are convicted, said Sergeant Mike Hannon, who is investigating the cold case. When there is something unsolved, the risk of the person did doesn't change. There is a life loss. But people, their safety is kind of out of balance. Tinch had been going through an especially ugly legal fight when he decided to get away for a few days. Those who knew him said the decision wasn't unusual. He had always loved spur-of-the-moment trips, whether it was to an overseas destination or somewhere closer to home in Austin. That was one of the things that kept Chris going. His friend Kevin Cooper said he had a wanderlust about him that made him want to do adventurous things. In Austin, his wife grew worried after 24 hours passed without hearing from him. She called the police as time went on. A Port Aransas police report showed officers searched his hotel room and found blood everywhere. Wow, that's a detail that was left out of the Port Aransas Corpus Christi area. This is why we read different articles. A Port Aransas police report shows officers searched his hotel room and found blood everywhere. The walls draped, bathroom floors, shower curtains, room ceilings, pictures on the walls, and lampshades all had blood spattered on them. Missing persons posters went up all over Port Aransas. Back in Austin, friends of the Tinch family, including Dana Welsh, gathered to console Chris's wife and two young children. I'll never forget that feeling, Welsh said. You always hope for the best, but there was... That sense that something was terribly wrong. Chris's wife met with investigators and told them about his ongoing legal fight with his employer. According to her statement to police, her husband had reported illegal business practice and received death threats. She also described a recent incident where two people were observed trespassing inside their fenced property near their residence. As investigators searched by air... Ground and boat, a state police helicopter saw Chris's body wash up on a nearby island about eight miles from Port Aransas. It's just that point at which all your hopes have been dashed, 
there is just a hard reality left to face, Welsh said. Sergeant Hannon said investigators have run down leads from Port Aransas to Austin and beyond. There was evidence that eliminated people, alibis were strong, witnesses placed them in places, things like that, he said. Cooper said he often thinks of his friends and that all the questions that still surround what happened. There has been no justice, he said. We know he was murdered, but we don't know how or why. KVUE Crime Files is an ongoing investigative series looking into cold cases in Central Texas and beyond. Here is another article about the same case. Mystery surrounds man killed on Texas coast. This is written by the Austin American Statesman, serving our community since 1871. Mystery surrounds man killed on Texas coast. Christopher Tinch, aged 43, had won lawsuits against former employer. Far from the hectic corporate life, Christopher Tinch was enjoying full-time fatherhood in 2006, taking a long sabbatical in Boulder, Colorado, after a string of successes in the international wireless technology business. Then he got an offer that lured him back into the world. A business in New Zealand wanted him to serve as its chief executive, promising financial enticements and a chance to live abroad again. They said, we need you. We need you to come and take this company, said Dan Tinch, the wife of Christopher Tinch, pronounced Tinch. And the excitement proved short-lived. Within two years, Tinch had moved back to Austin, where he lived after college, resigned officially as CEO, and mounted a full-scale legal crusade in U.S. district courts to seek millions from his former employer. Now he is dead. The end of his life came three years to the day that he announced he was leaving his previous employer and police have begun an investigation that extends from Austin to New Zealand. Police have said they are looking into whether Tinch's legal case is related to his death, but stress that they are also investigating a number of other scenarios. Two weeks ago today, Tinch set out on a solo fishing adventure in Port Aransas, about 200 miles southeast of Austin on the Texas coast. He promised he would call home the next day to get the final score of his 13-year-old son Taylor's first football game of the season. But when her phone did not ring and Christopher Tinch did not pick up any of her calls, Dana Tinch filed a missing persons report with the tiny Port Aransas Police Department. Officers soon found his belongings, keys, wallet, cell phone, and watch in the Holiday Inn Express room where he had been checked in hours before. But there were no other signs of Tinch. Why don't they mention the fucking blood? Why doesn't this Austin article mention that the room was covered in blood? Within days, the mystery surrounding his disappearance was partially solved. It was pretty suspicious. It wasn't really a mystery. It was covered in blood. He had been murdered. His body washed up on a remote island just north of the town. Police Chief Scott Burroughs said the tinch had been shot and would not say much more about what detectives found. Why wouldn't they just say when they put missing posters up, it should have been like wanted or like, have you seen this man? He's covered in blood and he's been bleeding a lot. Maybe we check some hospitals. The one we had cut up was like cut his like wrists and decided like not to do that and then like called um, an ambulance 
And, like, you know, the ambulance, they come got him, and then, like, his wife didn't know where he was. He's checked into a hospital. He didn't take his fucking wallet. You know, he might have gone to a coma or something from lack of blood. And I guess the hotel would have been like, yeah, that dude had to... <laughs> yeah, the hotel would, I guess, to tell you that. It wouldn't be that much of a mystery. But still, at the same time, it's like... Did the hotel not notice this guy was fucking walking around, stumbling? Wouldn't there be blood on the fucking ground, like, leading out in the parking lot? Quote, this is not CSI where a crime is solved in 45 minutes, end quote, he said. It could be a year or years. In recent months, Christopher Tinch, 43, had received anonymous threats. His wife told the American Statesman during a two-year interview last week she declined to describe the nature of the threats. In a voluminous court file, other company officials in New Zealand had discussed putting a bullet in Tinch. But lawyers have said that the phrasing is original colloquialism that refers to terminating a worker's employment, similar to axing an employee in the U.S. Bill Cryer, a spokesman for a Colorado law firm representing the company, said the lawsuit, of course, had nothing to do with the unfortunate circumstances of Mr. Trench's death. Nervous about possible dangers of his traveling alone to the coast this month, Daniel Trench said that he, she had been asked her husband if he thought he was safe. He eased her concern. No one is going to follow me to Port Aransas, he said, told her. Now, she said, I really feel like I'm in a nightmare. Christopher Tinch grew up just west of downtown Houston, the only son and youngest child of parents who had migrated from Germany in the early 1960s. His father worked in various jobs before becoming a traffic manager for a pipe and steel company. His mother was a homemaker. Sister Heike Trench, who still lives in Houston, said her brother was a typical boy, a rough-and-tumble child who often sported bashed knees and elbows and used tree limbs and twigs to build backyard forts. He attended private schools. Trench graduated from a military high school in Florida and studied business and marketing at Stephen F. Austin University in Nacogdoches, where he eventually became student body president, said Heike. Tench, who was about three years ahead of him at the same school. Because we are away from home, we sort of depended on each other, she said. Daniel Tinch was president of the sophomore class and met her future husband at the on-campus student government office in the early 1990s. She was attracted immediately. He had such a presence, she said. He's such a strong leader. I remember he walked into a room and everybody would go, There is Chris. It's not an arrogance. He just knows who he is. After graduation in 1991, Christopher Tinch moved to Austin, worked on a Senate campaign, and was a Capitol staffer during the 1993 legislative session. The same year he married, relatives and friends will say. Wary of a career in politics and government, he became interested in business and was the one of only a few applicants selected for a young executive program for SBC Communications, according to his family. That job took him to Dallas and St. Louis before the couple decided to move to Europe in 1998, where Tinch, who was by then a father, oversaw company operations in over 17 countries. By 2001, Tinch, who by that time also had a daughter, Emily, now 11 years old, was ready for a new venture. He became chief executive officer of BMD Wireless in Switzerland. Family members said the company helped make possible the transmission of text messages among various service providers. He continued operating the business until 2006 when the family decided to return to the U.S. and settled on Boulder, Colorado. There, an interest in mountain climbing blossomed, and over the next several years, Tinch would climb Mount Kilimanjaro and hike to the southern summits of Mount Everest. 
Pictures of his climbing adventures line the mantle in his family's home. Daniel Tint said that she thinks her husband's interest in climbing was fueled by the chance to continue pushing himself. He said, I built a company and I need a new challenge, she said. Troubles on the job. After only a few months on break in Colorado, Christopher Tinch told his wife that he was starting to wonder how long he would remain what he called golden or marketable. When Tinch was drawn to a former client, New Zealand firm plus SMS Limited, his wife said, As the head of a company with global operations, Tinch lived with his family for a year in Guernsey, a British Channel island off the coast of Normandy. The mobile phone service provider was in the midst of a volatile period, which Tinch initially saw as a challenge. His wife said shares in the Christchurch, New Zealand-based firm slid 40%, triggering an inquiry from regulators weeks before Tinch signed on in June 2006. Not long after Tinch joined Plus SMS uh, disputes with his superiors over the company's transparency and shareholders arose, and board members began to pressure him to pump the stock or exaggerate the company's performance. Tinch claimed later in court records and media interviews. He realized quickly the market capitalization was off the charts and it was something he was going to have to change, his wife said. He felt strongly to do the right thing. Despite the growing strain, Tinch led expansions of plus SMS into Latin America and the U.S. And he and his family came back to Austin in 2007 to set up a new U.S. office. Within a year, however, the relationships uh, soured beyond repair and plus SMS had brought and a new chairman, Robert Hunter, who quickly became Tinch's nemesis. He resigned on September 11, 2008, September 11, 2008, September 11, 2008, giving six months' notice. I felt like a lot of things were going on inside the company that were outside of my control and really didn't want to have part of it anymore, Tinch later testified. The next month, Tinch was fired. Executives flew to Austin to shut down operations there. Tench sued in state district court in Travis County, claiming breach of contract, wrongful termination, and defamation. Among the points of contention, 13 million shares of plus SMS that Tench believed belonged to him, court records said, though documents did not list an estimated value. In 2009, the case was moved to the U.S. District Judge Lee Yackel's office in our office of court in Austin. In court testimony and subsequent arbitration hearings, legal, ter- legal teams for Tinch and the New Zealand firm faced off. Emails produced during court proceedings showed that executives had plotted to fire Tinch and their chief financial officer, Les Codes, and timed legal maneuvers to disrupt a climbing trip Tinch had planned, according to court filings. In a September 19, 2008 email, Plus SMS Director Clive Thomas told Hunter to, quote, put a bullet in Les and Chris next week. Do not pay them as we are doing a full audit of the various companies. Court records show. Despite the New Zealand legal team asserting that the meaning of the phrase, the statements were enough to alarm the Tinches who also faced financial pressures, Dana Tinch said. Christopher Tinch claimed he couldn't find work. Prior to coming on board with his company, people would be calling me, offering me all types of positions, job opportunities, and those have absolutely disappeared, Tinch testified in January, insinuating that he was blackmailed by corporate insiders. 
In June, Tinch won a nearly $430,000 settlement from the judgment that included a $250,000 award plus legal costs. But as the U.S. legal fight appeared to near its end, it was just the beginning in New Zealand. On July, plus SMS sued Tinch in its home country. The company argued that the action could keep Tinch from actually getting the money, which sat in a U.S. court registry. But now, with his death, plus SMS said it would drop the New Zealand lawsuit. The New Zealand litigation cannot and will not proceed in that country, the filing said. Also, it went on to say defendants have no objection to releasing the funds in the court registry to the estate to satisfy the judgment. The company expressed its condolences to the Tinch family. So it wasn't about that money. And it wasn't something just as small as that, but it was something uh, to do, and I think it was with occult things, to keep honor and secrecy. There's a lot of occult numerology going on here. Authorities get involved. The case has taken its total attention in recent months. It's not rare for him to get away on a solo trip to take a break, his wife said. Tinch had been planning a Sunday night stay in Port Aransas before perhaps spending Monday night in South Padre Island and returning home by Tuesday, his family has said. Burrow said the litigation is part of the investigation of Tinch's death and that may reach out to New Zealand police. For now, the department's two detectives, three Texas Rangers, the Travis County Sheriff's Office, and other investigators continue to pour over evidence, telephone records, witness interviews, and legal filings. Authorities have canvassed the beach where Tinch was found, checked his hotel room, and taken his photograph to bars and restaurants there. Police received a wave of tips at the beginning of the investigation, but none has led to a break in the case, Burrow said. Investigators are also looking for a fisherman who had contact with Tinch that Sunday, Burrow said. There is no description of this man, but police continue to talk to visitors at the same jetty on the far north side of Mustang Island where Tinch was believed to have gone fishing that Sunday between 3 and 8 p.m. Tinch checked into his Holiday Inn Express hotel room on 727 South 11th Street in the Beachside Community, Sunday at 2.50 at p.m. By 8 p.m., he had called his wife and said he was going to walk somewhere to buy a hamburger. And soon after, he called his parents and left his sister a message. His family has said. Dan Tinch said he, she texted her husband late that evening around 11.30 p.m. and called the next day every two hours by Monday night after he had failed to call her. She contacted the hotel staff, which found her husband's car keys, wallet, cell phone, and watch in his room. No mention of the blood. No mention of blood. At 10.20 a.m. Thursday at Texas Department of Public Safety helicopter, found Tinch's body floating along the remote southern Gulf Shore of nearby San Jose Island. Burrow said the body was found an estimated 7 to 8 miles from his hotel room. Burrow said investigators suspect that Tinch's body might have been dumped the deeper water far out from the area's jetty system. At his funeral just outside Austin last week, relatives and friends played a video showing pictures from throughout Tinch's life, all sets of music that his son wrote and played for his father. In their grief, Dana Tinch said they also have found hope that the case will soon be solved. I pray that answers will one day be revealed to us, she said. End article. Here is a um, Reddit post about this case. The Tinch case. Um, I'll read it. 
it won't it won't solve the case or anything. There's no great revelations or anything, but um, it gives a pretty good feel for it. And I have worked in Port Aransas. I have spent combined totals of years of my life in Port Aransas. Uh, I know the people in Port Aransas. I have worked many different kinds of jobs on the island, uh, from construction to restaurants to working for the county itself. Um, you know, I love the island. I know the people very well intimately. It's 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 something that I prefaced that before to talk about the environment because it's something that you need to know when you know these cases, the environment of people, right? So here's a post that was written four years ago to the day. In September of 2011, Austin businessman Kristen, or Chris Tinch went to South Texas to go fishing. Days later, his body was found in the surf. Despite an investigation that ranged from Texas to New Zealand, his murder remains unsolved. Port Aransas is a small city, approximate population 3,400, on the southern coast of Texas. It's situated on Mustang Island, a barrier island near Corpus Christi. It's popular spot for vacationing, fishing, and spring break. It has been featured, albeit fictionally, in TV shows like King of the Hill and The X-Files. Between spring break and Labor Day, Port A is a crowded, noisy, hot mess of drinking, dining, dancing, fishing, live music, sightseeing, and traffic. Between Labor Day and spring break, it is a quiet, laid-back place where everyone knows each other and most bars allow you to bring a dog inside with you. There are three birding, bird-watching centers. Remains of gun placements with World War II uh, memorabilia had to guard that port from Nazis and even a couple of small museums. I lived there for about five years and visited frequently before that. My father owned a small business there. I left about six years ago, but I was there when Chris Tinch was murdered. On September of 2011, Tinch was, of many, was one of many who came to Port A every year to get away from it all. An Austin resident and businessman, Tinch had invented the technology that allows cell phones to send text messages to phones on different carriers rather than only to phones of the same provider. That day, after Tinch arrived in Port A, his wife became concerned, but she was unable to reach him. She phoned his hotel, a Holiday Inn Express in the middle of town. Tinch's room was empty. His wallet, keys, and phone were inside. His car was in the parking lot, but he was nowhere to be found. I have seen one local news article in which the police said our officers came in and found what appeared to be a crime scene, but this was not elaborated upon. On September 15th, Tinch's body was found in the surf off of St. Jose Island, known locally as St. Joe. Another barrier island directly to the northeast. Barrier islands are basically sandbars that will someday no longer exist due to natural erosion. He was determined to have been killed by a gunshot or gunshots. It's not clear which. The authorities have kept many details under wraps intentionally in order to preserve the integrity of their investigation. During the course of the investigation, it was discovered that Tinch was involved in a nasty legal battle with Plus SMS, a New Zealand company that had helped build. Tinch had apparently been covered some type of pump and dump stock scheme being perpetrated and had been blown the proverbial whistle. He was terminated shortly thereafter, prompting him to sue for wrongful termination as well as, as uh, assets he claimed to have been denied. Tinch won his case months before he would meet his untimely end. Plus, SMS appealed. In the meantime, however, Tinch's actions had exposed fraud, effectively ruined his former company, and exposed numerous people to legal jeopardy. Emails were found in the accounts of Plus SMS executives that read, quote, Put a bullet in Tinch, quote. 
However, these emails were sent prior to Tinch's firings, and it was noted that putting a bullet in someone is a New Zealand colloquialism for firing someone, similar to sacking someone or giving them the axe. After Tinch's death, Plus SMS dropped their legal appeal and paid the judgment against him, which would now go to Tinch's wife and children. Little progress has been made on the case, and police have said that recently as last year they have no viable leads. There were suspects, apparently, but none of them have been named, and all alibis for the time of Tinch's disappearance and murder. Having lived in Port Aransas, I can attest that the town has a very low rate of violent crime. There are only two ways on and off the island. To the southwest, there is Highway 361, a two-lane highway that passes over marshy stretches of wetland. It's about 15 to 20 minutes to South Padre Island going that way. The other way off are the ferries to the north. That involves waiting in line to get on a slow-moving ferry and getting deposited on the other side of the Aransas Pass. If the police are chasing you, your options for escape are limited. Very limited. At that time, there was a real mix of rich and poor on the island. Most of the poor workforce service uh, work force serves in industry jobs. They were ramshackle trailers not far from expensive homes. There was also lots of drugs, sex, and general sense of everyone knowing everyone else's business that comes with living in a small town. Fistfights are not uncommon, nor property crime. Police are often locals, and how well you get along with them often dictated how you were treated. I was pulled over once while quite drunk. It shames me to admit, and made to my park, my car and walk home, even getting my bottle of 100-proof vodka given back to me after being sent on my way. Similarly, I've seen unpopular people are those known to be trouble, quote-unquote, hounded at every step. Please know that I'm not disparaging Port A's or any law enforcement officers. Just pointing out that Port A probably isn't too different from many other small towns police-wise. It was fairly laissez-faire as long as you weren't a quote-unquote troublemaker. The kind of place where you could walk down the street drinking a beer as long as it wasn't in a glass container, beat safety rules you know, and not get hassled as long as you at least put a koozie on it or look like you could walk a straight line. After Hurricane Harvey hit in August of 2017, many of the poor residents left and never came back. There were often renters who had no place to return to, or had found better living in bigger cities like San Antonio. And over the last several years, as property values have skyrocketed, many home and business owners have sold. I remember it as a place that kept a lot of secrets. Someone has a drug habit, someone beats their wife, somebody is a thief or a kleptomaniac. But no one says or did really anything about it. There was one incident where some seagulls were mutilated and injured with blowguns. It made the news in the area like it was a real crime. But the guy who was widely known to have done it was unstable and violent. No one ever dimed him out, as far as I know. Predictably, he is now in prison for an unrelated matter. I don't know who killed Tinch, but my gut says it wasn't local. It doesn't feel like a local type of crime. Murders are very rare in Port A. Although I do remember two tourists getting into a fight that resulted in one of them dying from stab wounds, I was listening in on a scanner in my house as he died in the back of an ambulance on one of those slow-moving ferries. It was fucking intense. If it was a local, people may never talk, and now that the low-income population has been scattered by a hurricane, 
there may not be anybody left who would know, even if it was the case. And there's not much of worth in the the comment section, except for the escape routes, which I think people are getting really into. And the obvious, um, you know, but people offering the fact that they could have escaped by yacht or boat in one of the marinas, as there is very little restrictions for the comings and goings of private sailing vessels, which is true. People don't realize that, and they need to look it up. One, boat captains, that's just a license like a driver's license and can be acquired just as easily. And all you need is a boat to be a boat captain. And if it's up to sale and you've been verified and passed or whatever, your first inspection, it's really your responsibility after that. And boat mooring fees, like boat costs, harbor fees and stuff like that, uh, the rent for keeping a boat is like... $20 a month or like $50 a month in some areas, especially around uh, this area. And like I said, you could easily travel up and down the coast or the Caribbean islands or literally around the world. If you were a competent of sailor committing murders and just slipping off in the middle of the night or disposing of the victims on your boat, like in Dexter, because literally nobody keeps like, it's your private residence, your private boat. It's your private property. Just like taking your car out of a private garage uh, yeah, there would be cameras and everything, but there is nothing suspicious about that, especially since drugs and sex and weird shit. Like, you say, like, if you're just a foreigner anyway, yeah, you're slipping off, uh, you know, unsuspiciously during the day to go sail down the coast as if though you were intended after having committed a, you know, a murder or two uh, wherever you were anchored and moored. And, you know, you were just in town, you get a hotel. People understand you don't want to be on a boat. You get a hotel, uh, commit your murders from there. Stuff like that. Like, you know, that's just the thing. That doesn't have to do with this case. That's just the thing with boats. And yeah, you know, like, it's just, uh, that's really the only thing in the comments there. And that's really what, you know, has to be said about it. Um, and then there is this reply that's actually like uh, worth kind of reading. The biggest red flag to me is that both he and his wife felt he was being followed. She was concerned about his trip, and he said to her, Don't worry, no one's going to follow me to Port Aransas. That was verbatim. She knew as soon as she wasn't able to reach him on Monday to call authorities because they had suspected that he would be killed. That to me says it was something like a hit of some sort, but it it seems more personal than that. If he was being followed around his hometown, like I'm assuming, and they had seen trespassers, why go to... So around Austin Westlake for a while before he was followed to Port A, like four hours away, that's serious commitment. Also, why go alone? I don't think whoever did it was local to Port A either. These local crimes seem messy and petty, and this seems calculating and requiring effort and preparation. Authorities said something to the effect that the body appeared to have been dumped in deeper water but floated and washed ashore. That requires at least renting a boat, and locally in Port A, even because what's the next closest city, Corpus or Rockport? I wonder if boat rental places were checked, not to mention getting things like rope or weights or whatever to wrap a body if they were intended the body to sink means spending more time with that person and body, like an actual grunt, and physically uh, physically exerting oneself, so there may be multiple people. That's personal, and I feel like a local or even semi-knowledgeable sailor would know about currents and how to check them. 
or at least how to properly rig something to sink. And this person seems like they just went and dumped him and didn't think to check that. But they could have killed him anywhere at any time, just gunned him down or left him in the hotel room or killed him at a secondary location and left him there. But they didn't want to the trouble and most likely getting him on a boat, whether alive or already dead, killing him, or if he was already dead, hauling him, uh, wrapping him, maybe, or physically getting his body off the boat and into the water. That They didn't just want him dead. They wanted his physical presence gone and spending time and effort to do so. If so, why? If the New Zealand company was like the Enron of New Zealand, then comparing it to Enron, I think at least one executive committed suicide, but I don't think any of the whistleblowers were physically harmed or killed by executives, you know, with Hitman or anything. The, if anything, the victims could be the ones wanting payback from the perpetrators. In the scenario, he himself was the whistleblower, not the one perpetrating the crime. So in the broadest sense, I don't think that sort of white-collar crime leads to murder when it's that broadest sort of crime. Also, the lawsuit was eventually paid out, so it wasn't for money. Like, duping shareholders where more than one person or department has to be involved, uh, like Wolf of Wall Street style, there were no hits involved in that. I don't think that smaller business matters, interpersonal affairs, or politics are more personal and would provoke someone to murder and just want someone gone. With a reply to that message, reading... What seems strange to me is the local article mentioning in the write-up stating that the room appeared to be a crime scene. With someone's wallet, phones, and keys being left behind in a hotel isn't enough for police officers to say that, so to me it seems like the room must have been fucked up in some way. If that were the case, you would expect the killer to be on surveillance somewhere in the hotel. Most chain hotels have cameras at the exits, so there should be footage of him leaving with someone. I agree with your thoughts about the boat too. If he has been followed by someone, that person wouldn't necessarily have ties to the area where he disappeared. Dumping his body in deep water indicates that his murder didn't want him quickly found. Why? If you're there on a hit, who cares how quickly his body is found as long as you've successfully left and evaded detection at the time of the murder? It seems like the murderer has to be someone who wanted to buy time for a specific reason. Probably to alibi themselves. Here's a comment, too, that just about General Porter Ranzas it. The Eagle Ford Shale scandal did a number on that town. Massive oil play made a lot of former substance farmers and ranchers literally overnight millionaires. And a lot of that money found its way to Port Aransas, Aransas Pass, and Rockport. Been going down there my whole life and in my 40s now. Watching Port A change over the last decade was interesting, but Harvey was a nail in the coffin. Those low-income neighborhoods and trailer parks on the bay side of the island were already feeling price pressure from the fancy new canals and marinas on the bay side. But with Harvey, most of those owners cashed out and finally sold to land developers. George Strait and Red McCombs, both from San Antonio, are two of the biggest land developers in the island. It's crazy seeing a murder mystery. Here's one. I'm from New Zealand, and I live in Austin, Texas now. Small world. I didn't do it, lol. But I will say, quote-unquote, put a bullet in him is not New Zealand slang. 
It is not common, and not anything I have heard before. That is said in movies when they mean to shoot a guy. My New Zealander fiancé says that putting a bullet in someone is not a saying at all here. I think we may have solved that case, LMAO. Here's another comment of common sense. Worked with a dude for years in Austin who'd go to Port A all the time, but always with someone, be it his girlfriend or some buddies or his family. This dude just went alone? Question mark. I don't know a lot of guys who can just leave their wives and children in Austin while they drive down to the coast to unwind all by themselves. If it's a business trip, sure. If you're meeting a business partner or a, a contact or an old friend, yes. If you're having an affair, definitely. But for a solo vacation away from your family, that's weird. Why did the wife let him go? Without her or the children. Especially when they thought that he was being followed. The only guys I know who go to Port A alone are hardcore fishermen. Are drug dealers. And I imagine even they have fellow fishermen they hang out with down there. Are contacts they're meeting up from other places. Something doesn't add up. And so, yeah, that, that's, you know, it's, it's pretty fucking much that's the case. It's just, there's some crazy fucking shit going on. And um, clear that there's a lot of foul play, a lot of, a lot of shit that we're not being told. A lot of evidence that's being withheld from us as the, as the audience, as the, as the population, as the civilians. Um on this local crime because it's still an active crime scene to in maintain the integrity I get that but definitely it's one for the history books in terms of how far reaching and crazy the implications of this seemingly random murder truly are especially when considering the program to kill methodology to understand the conspiracy of the occult and of big business and deep government connections, deep state stuff, international organized crime, hitmen, assassins, all playing out in small towns right next door to each and every one of us. And this is what we know as our news. Let's continue to different cases in the second hour. Maybe not as important, maybe not as well-known. In fact, definitely very obscure. But it's equally unsolved and it's equally fascinating for just how macabre and mysterious they really are. In this case, we'll remember a man and a murder. This is from the Dallas Voice. 
Surprisingly, the premier media source for LGBT Texas. Which is the only source I found this murder on. Talking about how obscure this shit truly is. But adds a fascinating window into the Port Aransas society. A man and a murder remembered. The 1996 slaying of Michael Robert is back in the news as the man who admitted killing him is released then sent back to prison. Written by David Webb. A tragic murder of a prominent South Texas gay activist 26 years ago has been brought back to the forefront for relatives and friends of the murdered man because of his killer's continued criminal activity. John Keith Fay, 55, pleaded guilty to the bloody slaying in 1996 of Texas Human Rights Foundation board member Michael O'Bannon Robert, but served only 19 years of his 35-year sentence. Now, however, Fay has landed back in prison after violating his parole with illegal drug activity. Fay was convicted on May 25th of this year in possession of a controlled substance after police found the drugs on him during an arrest in 2021 on suspicion of making terroristic threats in Guadalupe County. Faye was held in jail in the parole violation charge after his arrest until his transport to the Garza West Unit of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice in Beeville on July 29th. He must now serve an additional five-year sentence on the drug conviction. Unless Faye is granted parole again, his release date will be May 23, 2036, and he will be 69 years old. Faye, who also went by the name of Sean McClure, was a 29-year-old drifter when he met Robert, the owner of the Seahorse Inn in Port Aransas. The two developed a friendship and maybe something more, according to Robert's first cousin, Andrea Heberlein of San Marcos. They reportedly met at an LGBTQ function. The Seahorse Inn, which Robert had inherited from his romantic partner Jack Cobb after Cobb's death in 1985, became a popular vacation site for LGBTQ people and groups before Robert's death. It was advertised in This Week in Texas and other gay publications. Cobb, a Dallas native who lived most of his life in Port Aransas, was a flamboyant opera lover who traveled the world and collected art samples and or art and antiques, including a grand piano. He and Robert, a Port Aransas native, lived together for many years. After throwing lavish parties before Cobb died of a heart attack in 1985 in Longview while traveling, Hebeling said. If you were invited to the seahorse, she said, you went. Lead up to a murder. Haberlin said that Robert and Faye, who had a girlfriend at the time, had a falling out soon after their relationship started, reportedly over Faye stealing from Robert. She described Faye's behavior as erratic. Then in 1994, Robert filed charges against Faye for unauthorized use of Robert's 1990 Cadillac and the theft of other items from his home. Michael got rid of him and wouldn't let him near the place for years, Heberlin said of the incident. But Robert apparently ran into Faye again in 1996 and began to allow him to visit his home, Heberlin said. He reportedly had told friends that Faye was a troubled person whom he was trying to help. That very day he killed Michael, Heberlin said. It was tragic, wanton, and uncalled for. Michael made a mistake. Faye pleaded guilty in February 1997 without making a statement in court about the murder. His lawyer then told Robert's friends and relatives that Faye wanted them to know the murder was not planned and that things got out of hand. That's all I ever got. 
That's just the things got out of hand, said Haberlin, who attended the court appearance with her husband. Haberlin said that Robert's sister, Judith Robert, who died in 1997, approved of the guilty plea in connection with the capital murder charge against Faye. Robert had only one other sibling, a brother who could not be reached for comments. Out of prison, then back in. Haberlin said she was notified in 2016 when Faye was released, and that it did not surprise her because it is standard procedure when someone has served more than half a sentence. Still, she said, I wouldn't have voted for it, but I didn't get a vote. Haberlin said she was surprised to learn that Faye had violated his parole and had been returned to prison. You would think that someone had been in prison for almost 20 years and got out with no better, she said. It was incredibly stupid. Faye was released to supervision by the parole department in Nueces County, according to court records. He lived in Corpus Christi and in Seguin before his incarceration in the Guadalupe County Jail in March of 2021, according to an online search of his whereabouts. His first sign of a possible parole violation occurred in October of 2020, when he was charged with alleged criminal trespass in Bear County, but that charge was dismissed. The Aftermath of Murder Robert's body was found by the manager of the Seahorse uh, sorry, the Seahorse Inn. Yeah, Robert's body was found by the manager of the Seahorse Inn when the manager reported to work on August 8th of 1996. His death was attributed to bleeding from neck wounds thought to have been inflicted the previous night. Faye was arrested by Texas Rangers on August 14th, 1996 on the 1994 charge of unauthorized use of Robert's vehicle that apparently was never withdrawn. After Robert's murder, Faye apparently again stole his car and yet more items, and the car was found abandoned in Brownsville, leading authorities to suspect Faye had fled to Mexico. Haberlin said that she was the executor of Robert's estate and she ran the hotel for a year until all legal matters were settled. Haberlin sold the Seahorse Inn a year after Robert's death to two women who changed the name to Bell's Sea Inn. Bell's Sea Inn is still in operation. After it was sold, I never set foot on the place again, Haberlin said. I never went back. I never wanted to see it again. There was too much trauma and heartbreak. A life cut short. In the 1960s and 1970s, Robert worked as a teacher in California. Then he moved to London, England, before returning home to Corpus Christi Bay Area. He had a bachelor's degree in theater with a minor in English from Southwestern Texas State University in San Marcos. Robert did volunteer work for the Coastal Bend AIDS Foundation and served Thanksgiving dinner to AIDS patients. An avid Democrat, Robert served as Nueces County Precinct 19 chairman in the early 1990s, and he ran unsuccessfully for Nueces County Justice of the Peace in Port Aransas in 1992. He also worked in the campaigns of Governor Ann Richards and President Bill Clinton. If Roberts had lived, he would be 77 years old today. Michael was kind and generous man, concerned about people's welfare, Hibbelin said of her cousin. He did a lot of good. He was my best friend in the world. I loved him more than anybody else. End of article. And that was published on... 2020. Now, to um, kind of um, add some more detail to this, 
there's this article here that I'll read a little bit of. I won't read the full thing because it keeps going on. It's a long article. It's from Texas Architect Magazine. Right? And it's a bit of gonzo journalism. But it's Texas Architect Magazine. Right? And it's titled Design for Liberation. Port Aransas Fabled Salon in the Dunes. And it's about the Seahorse Inn, which was the inn that was owned by Michael, um, what's his name? Hold on one second. Michael Robert. But first owned by his, uh, lover, who, uh, you know, gave it to him to inherit after his mysterious, after his mysterious death. And Michael Robert also was a prominent politician as well as a salon owner. And he worked for the Democrats, including Governor Ann Richards and President Bill Clinton. So while never really being an elected official alone, he worked with some big-name people involved in Texas politics, and eventually a president of the United States, and that president being the extremely crooked President Bill Clinton and his hillbilly mafia. He traveled and lived in London, England for an undisclosed amount of years before returning to the Corpus Christi Bay Area and had a bachelor's degree in English or degree in theater and English at Southwest Texas State University in San Marcos. So this is a very successful, intelligent, and powerful, and like in their own sphere of influence, powerful ambitious person who was stabbed in the neck by seemingly a drifter, a a homeless drug addict who he kept taking into his confidence presumably for sex. And this individual started basically either taking advantage of him, stealing his car, stealing his money and then was welcomed back Again, presumably for sex, as well as some maybe some hypnotic animal magnetism, and then killed. But we'll read this article, and you'll see why this is like programmed to kill Democrat sex party, um, fucking gay, uh, super weird clubhouse, rape house kind of environment, where the man never gave any details as to the actual event. But the circumstances are a lot like Ed Buck. Ed Buck, a Democratic uh, sponsor and powerhouse in California for the California Democratic Party who was convicted of injecting black men who were drifters, homeless, and drug addicts with methamphetamines to the point where they would overdose and then raping their bodies. Um, That was a thing that happened. He killed many people doing that. Look that up. He's in jail now because of it. And that happened. That's a fact. These Democrats get into extreme sexual situations with gay uh, orgies, like the Democrat who was running in Florida for the Florida governor who was caught ODing by by paramedics at a motel gay orgy with bodybuilders. Uh, That was a thing that happened in the Democratic Party in Florida. There was a thing with the Democrats... um, you know, the, the whole um, uh, John Wayne Gacy situation that happened with Milwaukee where he's shaking hands with, um, I believe it's Linda Carter. 
um, or it's 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 uh, um, it's Jimmy Carter's wife, I believe. He's shaking hands with Jimmy Carter's wife or Nancy Reagan. But th- this idea of this this weird world of death and high stakes gay uh, bathhouse shit, you know, fucking weird sex culture coincides far too frequently, especially with international type ties and interests and shit. And like I said, this is not because it's happening coincidentally. This is all because it works together as as and you'll you'll see just because this is not an article that's conspiratorial by the way. This is from Texas Architects magazine. Texas Architects magazine wrote this article. For decades the Seahorse Inn was an open secret perched high on a massive Port Aransas dune. From the mid-1950s to the 1990s, the secluded compound offered famous politicians, opera divas, and writers an off-the-beaten path to retreat. The inn also gave refuge to people skirting the margins of South Texas respectability. Gay men, women, actresses, or academics, and Democrats. Locals gossiped about the dark days-long parties that spilled from the social club down to the beach. The all-natural nude sunbathing the queer design sensibilities and a kitchen that produced international cuisine beyond the typical southern fried seafood platters. The need for discretion, however, meant that much of the inn's lore was shared only among tight social circles, typically reserved for word of mouth. Next to nothing had been written about this Texas legend, and most stories had been lost to time, and by time, decades. For the record, here is mine. And it goes on to talk about um, how this college graduate uh, went to this Seahorse Inn after hearing about it from professors from UT of Austin, right? So as a graduate student from UT of Austin in the early 90s, hear rumors had finally confirmed a gay-friendly beach hotel with a reputation for big characters, celebrities, and free-willing parties. Intrigued and in need of some time away from my library stacks, I headed down to the coast. The Seahorse Inn and Club Mayelko, a beachside boutique hotel and dining club, was built by Jake Cobb in 1956. Cobb had helped build the family hospitality business created on tourist motor courts across Texas. But his new concept was something much more ambitious, a smartly designed lodge and social club boasting the island's first swimming pool and most elegant dining room, all nestled unobtrusively within an undisturbed natural environment. Over recent decades, the design of the compound had been controversially attributed to the O'Neill Ford, the father of Texas modernism. However, the search of Ford is like yada yada yada, architecture, architecture. Jack Cobb, himself the creator of the Seahorse Inn, was a renaissance man who knew O'Neill Ford and held a music degree from North Texas State University and a master's degree in English from Columbia University. The plans for the lodge were impressive for an amateur. Nonetheless, Ford expressed reservations. The architect who had created substantial beach compounds in the area for wealthy oil executives felt that Cobb's extraordinary property isolated atop one of the highest dunes on the coast called for the grandest of all designs. 
it just keeps going on to describe just how crazy the environment and how isolated the area was. It was over three miles away from the nearest place and you had to travel through rickety uh, sand roads and stuff. And it was written about in the, in the local press. 1957 Houston Chronicle Review noted the contrast between the remote locale and the high style of guests and services. Visitors could be assured of privacy in a mostly empty beachfront because cars could not travel there. Once tucked away in the wild dunes, adventurous guests could swim in a circular pool, have breakfast served poolside. Romantics could go on a midnight splash in the ocean. On some evenings, special entertainment was brought in. In 1957, the San Antonio Express News said the unique sun terraces overlooked the ocean, had a five-star restaurant for gourmets, and the only wine cellar bar for hundreds of miles. Amarillo Globe Times in 1960 reveled that the scene had an artsy, well-dressed, even stunning crowd that made it past the fish houses to mix with the cosmopolitan resort. It's another world. An adult, fashionable, sophisticated world. Two women travelers talking to the reviews from the great room were reading uh, foreign aesthetics and foils to the rustic wildness of the surroundings. From behind plate glass, it was a particularly chaotic bit of nature. Absolutely breathtaking. The women with an Eastern European accent confided in their companions. Breathtaking said, uh, was the word for the night gathering from conversations. She had been doing some paintings earlier in the afternoons. So a place of artists, a place of internationalists. And it just keeps going on. To talk about just the, the actual place itself throughout the decades. Artifacts from the post-Stonewall 1970s and 1980s. Nude sketches, political statement pieces, a poster of gay icon Harvey Milk as a saint cut to the seriousness with cheeky irreverence. New age crystals caught the coastal light in one window, and a colored glass bowl looking like a grandmother's candy dish offered brightly packaged condoms. Michael relished it, Michael Roberts relished any sense of wonder as I surveyed his cabinet of curiosities. He would casually drop lines like, oh, we picked that up in London. All rules of minimalism were put aside as Venetian chandeliers, gilded European antiques, and Asian ceramics took center stage. Here, the building receded into the background, more a display case for an eye-opening collection built from decades of world travels. A remarkable array of paintings, portraits, and the traditional works on various media from Asia and the Middle East were all mixed joyfully. And in the tradition of all artist salons, landscapes gifted by visiting painters added local color. Club Miyako is the dining and social club where originally Kristen showed off an imported red marble fireplace and massive antique glass-fronted cabinetry holding crystals, French tea service sets, and random treasures. The club's second floor had been lost to a fire by the time of my visit, but the large windows of the dining room had still offered lovely views to the illuminated pool and starry Texas skies. In its heyday, the Seahorse famously hosted musical ensembles, opera divas, and talented ho house piano players. 
the club boasting floor-to-ceiling ocean views and a unique modernist take on the hearth set a beautiful stage for Jack Cobb's beloved Steinway, star of the most colorful seahorse stories and legends. One story had the power had a powerful hurricane sweeping the piano, a piano through a plate glass wall and out into the pool. But by the 1990s, the elements were more fashionable. The party scene at the inn was matched only by a political scene. One original story included a young Hillary Clinton working her first political campaign, McGovern, in 1972 stopping in when she crisscrossed South Texas on her campaign. In later years, Michael Robert worked both with Ann Richards and Clinton slash Al Gore during the campaign directly from the inn. Michael loved showing his prized photos taken with L- Lady Bird Johnson and Ann Richard, or Governor Ann Richards as well as the jokey Driftwood Governor Suite sign he posted on occasions when Anne quietly escaped to the island for long nights of bridge with her girlfriends and story swapping with Michael. Michael is a longtime Democrat and gay rights activist, generously funding many campaigns and served in the Texas Human Rights Foundation Board. He was out and proud role model, and when most individuals or businesses only donated anonymously to Texas gay rights organizations, Michael insisted that his full name as well as the Seahorse Inn logo be displayed prominently on any publications and organizations he supported. And it goes on just to list how many people, both in the LGBT community, that were like major AIDS foundation people, lesbian gay rights lobby of Texas, executive director for the entire state of the 90s, and all these coastal band groups um, from the from the governor's office on down uh, were all basically headquartered in this inn unofficially. The fact this article though does say that Hillary Clinton personally. Was in this was in this fucking um, hotel. Oh, here's one about the murder. Um, yeah, once I finally submitted my complete dissertation, I uh, said, blah, 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 uh, "Going down to Port A." On the drive down, I told him anything could happen at my Oz on the beach. However, upon arrival, we were greeted with the shocking news that Michael Robert had been murdered by a troubled acquaintance. The person at the front desk did not volunteer much information. But years later, I would learn that when the attack took place, Michael was excited to be packing for the 1996 Democratic National Convention. So yeah, there's that. Like I said, I won't keep reading about the article because it's not really about that. But those are some details to know about that case. Oh, once again, fits perfectly into the program to kill model of reality. As this wealthy, aristocratic land, uh, you know, real estate politico, who was also gay 
and Democratic and had secrets and blackmail, knew literally Bill and Hillary Clinton, which you can't get any more conspiratorial. Like, I mean, it just speaks for itself. I really don't even have to elaborate on just how fucking crazy this story of the Seahorse Inn in Port Aransas is. And I have to dedicate probably an entire fucking episode on it, to be honest. Like, that's just, like, for decades served as a honeypot location for the gay Democrat Dixiecrats of the of the entire state, let alone internationally artists and uh, and you know people in these occult societies, and the Clintons. I mean, the fucking Clintons, as well as the governor of Texas, would go down there and indulge themselves and in, for the privacy and shit. That's fucking like you know. I mean, I mean, I really don't have to elaborate on that. That's fucking crazy. And as someone who lived here, I never knew that fucking story. Never fucking even knew that place existed. Because they said they changed the name and everything. And uh, being born in 87, this... I mean, I was a very small child by the time this all went down. That's fucking nuts, though. That this man would just be stabbed in the throat. And there's, like, very little information about the actual murder. And that person never even confessed to, like... uh, He just confessed to the actual murder of doing it. And then just said things got a little out of hand. The last case we're going to talk about for unsolved murders in Port Aransas... It's an article. It's a, it's a little bit more low scale. It's a little more regular salts of the earth. It's a little bit more common person. It's a little bit more nobodies, you know, families that live in trailer parks and shit. Not this high society shit that's connected between billionaires and the big tech world. These technocrats in South by Southwest are these uh, super international. Even the president's offices and everything uh, have property down here. The Bushes and the Clintons. From Valley Central NBC, Brownsville. Texas family killed in murder-suicide. Teens shared disturbing photos on social media. This is in Aransas Pass. This is over the ferry, but I consider it part of the greater Aransas area. There's Aransas Pass in Port Aransas. Everything of the high society in the first case has happened in Port Aransas, and this is happening in Aransas Pass. San Patricio County Sheriff's Office is investigating a triple murder-suicide after a 15-year-old boy shared disturbing photos on social media and threatened a local school. Aransas Pass PD was alerted by the Texas Department of Public Safety in McAllen that a teen boy shared photos on social media around 2 a.m. on Thursday. Police told San Patricio Sheriff's Office that the boy, identified as William Kinsey Colburn III, had threatened to continue his violence at a local school. Deputies and police found that the boy lived at an RV park on South Commercial Street in Aransas Pass, which is located a couple of miles north of Corpus Christi. Authorities arrived at the scene and spoke to the teen from outside the RV. They asked him to step outside to speak with them. Sheriff Oscar Rivera stated that Quincy denied the authorities' requests and then a single gunshot was heard. When officers entered the residence by force, they found the bodies of William Coburn Jr., 63, Jana Coburn, 53, Emma Coburn, 13, two dogs, 
and a 15-year-old, according to Sheriff Rivera. Our investigation continues on the sad tragedy, and of course, we have so many unanswered questions we are trying to find answers to, Sheriff Rivera said in a statement. The cause of deaths has not been released. Ingleside Police Department also worked the scene. The investigation is ongoing. And that's actually the only article I found about this case. Um, I think it's kind of odd they said that the, the cause of death at least was not released for the family. Although I think gunshot wound is, is most likely the case. But if it's not, that would be even, even fucking weirder. Because this is extremely suspicious that... that the Aransas Pass Police Department was alerted by the Texas Department of Public Safety in McAllen. McAllen is a city that's across the southern Texas, uh, you know, panhandle and and at the bottom part of Texas and um, across the Rio Grande Valley on the border of Mexico. It's about two hours away driving. Did this child teenager, the 15-year-old boy, go to that school? It's not unconceivable to have connections, friends, cousins, etc. But why was there violence directed on Facebook at this McAllen school? Why was the McAllen PD the one that that notified the Aransas Pass Police Department if this 15-year-old boy was going to threaten to continue acts of violence, probably referencing killing his parents, did he post photos of his dead parents or plots of murdering his family to social media, to Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat, whatever? Was he talking to his friends about this? Was this some kind of future mass shooting uh, like Uvalde County that was going to happen where someone shoots uh, his family members and then travels to a local school and commits a massive mass shooting, uh, killing many innocent people because of some government programming or some kind of ritualistic uh, murder. It happened um, September 16th, 2021, but also very close to September 11th. And I don't know when exactly this happened. As I don't know when exactly this happened. But if it happened around that date, then it would most likely be happening either on or around September 11th. But we do know for sure the victims were the 15-year-old boy themselves who had taken their own life via one gunshot wound and William Colburn Jr., age 63, Jana Colburn, age 53, which are the parents, Emma Colburn, which is a 13-year-old sister, um... Two dogs and a fifteen and the fifteen year old himself. So he killed his two dogs, he killed his sister, he killed his mother, and he killed his father. Was he posting photos on that online? Why did he kill his dogs even? Why why kill every single person in the house for when dogs are killed, when people kill their families, there's one thing about that. When pets are killed, 
that seems like a professional hit, a professional liquidation of a family, either done by a cartel or, you know, some occult satanic group, Freemasons, whatever, with a patsy being the 15-year-old boy, with the social media story between police departments being a cover story, maybe even deflecting the responsibility or guilt of the police departments themselves, the Aransas Pass Police Department, uh, this small-town Freemasonic-owned police department of, the, of Texas, like we all know the Texas are, plus their Freemasonic brothers, McAllen, who are probably mutually controlled by the same cartels, uh, creating a smoke story and co corroborating it between these two police gangs using official channels and their control over the media to have killed these people who we don't know what they were dealing with, uh, what, what situation they were in, either as maybe just, you know, smugglers or foot soldiers or maybe informants, uh, double agents, cops that were going federal, you know, just narcs, and they killed the entire family uh, and blamed it on the 15-year-old child, even though there's no reason for that. And just, you know, because, you know, crazy kids, crazy kids on, you know, mass shooting sprees and shit, it just makes a lot of sense. You can blame things on children. You can blame things on one member of the family and you can kill the whole family. Uh, Richard D. Hall has a very excellent case of like this in England where they blamed a individual who was obviously mentally ill and under state, state care, so obviously MK Ultra. But they blamed him on the murder of his entire family, his mother, his stepfather, brothers, etc., um, who were all stabbed to death inside a home. But they were stabbed to death inside a way that they didn't put up any resistance or struggle, which they were saying is because they knew him and he was able. they didn't have any like suspicions that he was going to hurt them. But reality is they could have been drugged, they could have been knocked out, they could have been uh, tied up or anything. And this that's a whole situation that these people were undercover informants for drugs. They had they were they were involved heavily in gangs. They were involved heavily in criminality. They had already been, like the stepdad had been uh, in jail for many years. Uh, they they knew very dangerous people. Yet that the state, who is either trying to silence witnesses or it's you know, whatever reason, is uh, creating these cover stories and these smoke screens for their murders by blaming an innocent patsy, typically the sons, uh, and blaming mental health, given the, the natural climate of the situation currently. Some crazy shit out there, it really is. Uh, these have been the uh, unsolved mysteries. These have been the unsolved murders, the cold cases of Port Aransas and the Aransas Pass area, the Aransas, Texas area. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for supporting. Thank you very much for uh, joining, paying attention. You know, even even your time is precious, or even a minute of it. If this is your first episode of your 400th, thank you very much. You can support through Cash App. Donate if you like this episode. Like send a dollar my way. Help me buy uh, some dinner. Help me buy maybe a large pizza. Ten dollars, five dollars, one dollar, whatever you have. Kicked off Patreon twice. I'll be trying to set up something like that so that you can get some exclusive monthly content, some dialogue with me, etc. Uh, but at the time, I'm currently kicked off of Patreon. I can't even register the Beyond Top Secret Texan channel um, on Patreon. So Cash App directly donating, best way to do it. You can join up for Spotify for 100 exclusive episodes of the earliest episodes and interviews, etc. on the show. $10, it's symbolic, um, but I offer my show for free. That just helps me on the back end by letting me know you support. 
And, you know, I know times are tough, but thank you very much for those who can support, those who have supported. Thank you very much. Hats off to you. You know, you guys are lifesavers. And um, really, you're the heart and, and like lifeblood of this entire project. Without you guys, we can't get this done. Thank you very much. The easiest way to do it, though, for free is liking, sharing, subscribing, posting online, sharing this to your social media, sharing these web episodes as far and wide as you can via Facebook groups, etc., whatever you have, TikTok, Twitter threads, um, you know, Discord, Reddit, whatever. Go ahead. Go forth. Share it. Share it. Share it. And that helps me out immensely because I'm shadow banned, shadow banned on all the platforms. Uh, thank you all very much. You know, God bless you and your families. Peace out.